0: The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Uh, we're, this, this context of this passage, we've been going through 1 Samuel. Uh, we'll spend just today and two more weeks in the book of 1 Samuel. We'll finish up this book. Uh, and then Advent season. Can you believe it? Uh, we are there. And um, we, last week we just read how David killed Goliath, and this story picks up immediately following... So we'll read in 1 Samuel chapter 17, starting in verse 55 through 18, verse 9. Starting in verse 55. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, "'Whose son are you, young man?' And David answered, "'I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite.' As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul." And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, The the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul, with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul I David from that day on. I pray that this series has been stretching for you. I've enjoyed hearing the kinds of conversations that have happened in your, in your life groups throughout the week. Um, of many who are digging deeper into this story uh, and in what God is teaching us. And just to bring your attention to the focus of our series, as you've seen it printed in your bulletins and even on our title page, First Samuel invites us to follow the shepherd king in an age of personal freedom. When our dominant cultural value in a time like today is do whatever seems right in your own heart, follow your heart, do whatever is right in your own eyes. God is calling his people rather to follow him, to trust in him, to obey him and and his word. And we should be honest with how difficult this is as a, as a people, as, a, as, as people living in a culture that wants to do their own thing, we should be honest how difficult it is to, to follow God uh, when it seems like uh, a very lonely place to be, when every, virtually every area of society is, says the opposite. Follow your heart. Do what's right in your own eyes. A couple weeks ago, Janae and I were preparing dinner in the kitchen while the kids were in the other room playing uh, and a mild argument broke out among our three children, um, which is not uncommon. And I think Janae or I, one of us, gave a, gave a gentle correction and rebuke to them from across the room uh, to, to our middle child, Kate. And then we hear our son calling out uh, from the room with such conviction with the phrase, You do you, Kate. <laughs> And we, we honestly, we, my wife and I are in the kitchen and we stare at each other and we, we were kind of questioning, did he just say, you do you, Kate? And we didn't know whether to be just like tragically offended or like impressed with his level of, of, of deception and sin. I don't know. We, <laughs> we handed in immediately our parent card and said, okay, we're done. We're not allowed to do this anymore. We have failed as parents. <laughs> It was just astonishing uh, to hear that reaction uh, when there's a correction given, just this immediate reaction of, Who are you to tell us what to do? Um, We have that tendency. I mean, this is in us. Uh, This isn't just something that immature children do, this is what we we all do. We have a tendency to resist God's wisdom, as we've seen through the pages of Scripture, as we seek our own hearts. Uh, We have a tendency to resist God's wisdom, to obey our own hearts. And our culture actually encourages that. It encourages us to do it. We find ourselves in very tough time. When encountering a difficult question, we might be prone to ask, what do people around me think about what I should do? Rather than, what does God say I should do? Instead of of being a light to the world and revealing God's goodness, we conform to our surroundings and blend in for the fear of being ridiculed, for being different and being not like others. We don't want to stand out. And what our passage highlights for us today is that if we want to follow God, if we want to follow him with conviction, we cannot do it alone. This passage reveals to us that it is not enough to have a sharp doctrine alone. It is not enough to have a courageous faith. It is not enough just to have a strong determination to be the people that God has called us to be. What we need is true friendship. We need true friendship if we desire to follow God faithfully. And so we'll look at three things in light of this true friendship this passage reveals. One, the difficulty of true friendship, because we all face that. The quality of of true friendship, what does it look like? And then finally, the way to true friendship, how do we actually get it? Let's look at first the difficulty of true friendship. And if we could just lament for a little while, as we look at how hard it is to actually have good friends, something we all struggle with. This passage gives us permission, I think, to to lament the reality of how difficult it is to have true friends in our life who truly love us, who truly love us with a love that is unconditional, that is loyal, that is committed, that is steadfast, that lasts a lifetime. We all want those kinds of friendships, I'm convinced. The story of the Bible would tell us not only do we want it, but we want it because we are actually created to have those kinds of friendships. As God himself has this kind of community and relationship within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are made in his image. We're image bearers to have such intimate and connected relationships with him and with others. But we know through our experience that this is harder to achieve. It's easier said than done. And let me point out David's difficulty in having true friendships. Maybe you see it as well. David is admired by many. He's also hated. David's admired and hated. He is admired by the soldiers. He's even admired by Saul when he comes back from war, claiming victory. By the ladies that gather, that from all the cities when he arrives into town after battle, all the women run out into the city singing their praises. The song is about him. How would you like that every day you came home and your, your wife and children made up a song for you? We just wanted to sing about how much we love you. It's amazing what's happening here. He is so admired, so flattered he is so praised for his accomplishments, and yet he's also so hated. He's hated by Saul, who becomes jealous of all his success. The passage says that Saul eyed David from that day on. He eyed him. You know what that is. I mean, that's like, I'm watching you. He eyed him from the, He's like, I'm watching you. I'm watching what you're doing. And this highlights the difficulty, I think, of true friendship for us. It's easy to find people who hate you. It's easy to find people who are disappointed in you when you let them down, when you threaten their comfort of freedom, when you go against their code of ethics. When you do anything remotely different from what they think you should do, it is so easy to find someone who are quick to ridicule you and quick to hate you. It's easy to find people also that admire you, who flatter you just because you've done a great job. It's easy to to garnish praise in the workplace. It's easy to garnish praise in, in in the home. Just do what people tell you to do. Just please them, and you'll be flattered. Lament with me how this reality and how the world portrays friendship, or what it says is friendship. People are admired to the degree that they are useful. People are admired in the world to the degree that they do things that are good. And people are hated to the degree that they threaten your way of life. And this is what the world, this is how the world portrays friendship. You want to have a friend? Then do things that are good. You don't want to be hated? Then don't bother anyone. And there are certain realities in our culture today that make it extremely difficult to make and maintain true friendships that we need to thrive in life with God and together. And I want to mention a couple of these because these are present even in David's time and they're present even today. And here's just a couple. One, one, one thing about our culture that makes it extremely difficult is this, that people are treated like consumer good, goods. What do I mean? I mean, if you, if you have your cell phone, your cell phone company is through Verizon, and you love Verizon, why do you love Verizon? I mean, do you love them because of their personality? No, you love them because they, they have great service. They have great reception. They have good phones. You, they, you love them because of what they give to you. But if they raise your rates, if you drop calls, I bet you hate them. <laughs> you hate Verizon. As quickly as you love them, <clears throat> you, will say, you will call them up and say, I want to cancel my service. We're not friends anymore. <laughs> and they will say, what can we do to make you happy? Do you see how we take this consumer relationship and we bring it into our friendships? It's tragic. This is not friendship. Most of the people you want to hang out with, most, most of the people who want to hang out with you, I, I hate to be a real Debbie Downer on Sundays and Veterans Day of all days, most of the people that want to hang out with you want to, be, want to hang out with you because you are useful to them. And before you say, that is just totally absurd, let me say this. Most of the people that you want to hang out with, you want to hang out with because they're useful to you. They look a certain way, they act a certain way, they give you certain things like community or praise, or you just have things in common and that makes you feel good, you don't feel alone. Think about your friendships. Think about all the relationships you have and just consider how much of these is just an exchange of goods. I'll give, you, I'll give you relationship if you give me something in return. You give me relationship and then I expect that I need to give you something in return. <clears throat> Every person who wants to be flattered and admired can be. I'm convinced of this. Just take a picture, make a comment, join a cause and post it online and watch the praise come in you're terrific, you're amazing, you're so perfect, you are beautiful, thumbs up, happy face, heart. All this stuff flows to our way and it's, showing, it's saying to us, we like what you're doing, we like you, we are your friends. And we feed right into it. We want to be loved, we want people to know us. And so we just put something out there and we wait for the praise to come in. That's not friendship. It, ta- it's, it feels like friendship, It looks like friendship, it's an illusion of friendship, but it's empty. Flattery and admiration smells and feels like friendship, but it is not friendship. Those people will just as quickly hate you if you do something that they don't like. And just as equally, there has never been a time where it is easier actually to be hated and ridiculed for the same reasons. Take a picture, make a comment, join a cause, post it online, and just watch the hate come in. Do you see how difficult it is to have true friendships in a culture where it's so easy to, have our, to, to put everything out there and for people to respond to it without a moment's delay? But true friendship is something different. True friendship is something different. People are not a means to an end, but rather they are an, they're an end in themselves where we don't use people, we don't use them for affirmation. We don't have relationships so that they can tell us that we are pretty and useful and awesome and smart and resourceful. But we have relationships because the people are not a means to an end, but an end in themselves. They are with you because they want to be with you. You are with them because you want to know them. Not because they're useful or the things that they have that can make your life easier. Do you see how hard it is, particularly in our culture, to make it it so difficult to know what true friendship actually is, when there are so many things that smell and feel like friendship but really aren't? Another reality in our culture that makes friendship difficult is that the dominant kind of intimacy that that we see and experience in our culture is mostly romantic or sexual. Look at the magazines and the hot gossip when you go through the grocery aisle. You'll learn about who's sleeping with who, who broke up with who, who's cheating on who. You'll learn all the content of a good country song. It's all right there in the checkout aisle of a grocery store. You don't see, guess who just became best friends with who? You don't see that. It's not interesting. Friendship is not interesting. Sex is interesting. Erotic, romantic, relationships. When it comes to... Intimacy, our culture is dominated by by one kind of intimacy. It takes all that we think about what it means to be close to a person and intimate with a person and even love a person, and we hang it on one kind of relationship, and it is the erotic or sexual relationship. This is why we didn't teach this in the family weekend last week, but it's important to hear even today. There aren't a lot of songs about friendship, but a lot about sex. There aren't a lot of songs about meeting someone at a club, becoming lifelong friends, and being each other's weddings later in life. There's a lot of songs about one-night stands. There's a lot of songs about how many people you can have erotic relationships with. And we wonder why it's so difficult to have intimate friendships that are non-sexual. We wonder why it's so hard for people to struggle with intimacy, sexually and relationally. When a culture that, that hangs all what it means to be close to a person on one kind of relationship, the romantic relationship. How many songs are about your job that you hear on the radio? How many songs are about parenting? How many songs are about sex? There aren't even a lot of movies about friendship. There are more movies about friendship between humans and dogs than there are non-romantic relationships between two people. I mean, seriously. (laughs) <laughs> it just highlights another area of brokenness in our culture for how we view friendship. Why do we love those kinds of movies? Why do we love our pets? Because they, they can't hurt us when we're vulnerable. I was trying to think of one movie and it was, I thought of one, it's My Girl. And I remember this scene underneath the sycamore tree with Veda and Thomas and they are just so, fr- they're, they're best friends. That's the point of the whole movie, they are best friends. And Veda is kind of lamenting, and she's saying, you know, everyone says that we need to have a romantic relationship because you can't just be friends. We need to kiss. And they're like, I don't know. She says, I don't see the big deal about kissing. What's the big point of kissing? And she says, maybe we should try. And so they kiss under the sycamore tree because they're thinking, well, any kind of relationship has to be physical in order to be real. And they kiss, and it's super awkward. And she says, it's so quiet. Say something. And he stands up and recites the... um, Pledge of Allegiance, (laughs) do you remember that? Anyway, never, and then he dies, it's just horrible. Never has there been a time where our culture has more access to romantic love and romantic love and sexual love, sexual and erotic relationship has been so publicized and never has there been a time when people feel more alone and more disconnected relationally. A culture that worships individualism and personal freedom will consequently be dominated by one kind of intimacy, romantic and erotic intimacy. We should not be surprised when we see a a culture that champions self-love and a culture that champions follow your heart. To witness a culture dominated by sex addiction, sexual abuse, and even on the other side of it, people that are so afraid of intimacy that they can't even get close to another person. We should not be surprised when the culture says love yourself, do everything for yourself to see people that don't know how to be close in a healthy way. We are experiencing the brokenness of a world that that worships personal freedom. And the point is this, if we live with the philosophy that our hope in life and all of its desire is found within ourselves and that any relationship that we have with others must be the purpose of bettering our life, then it becomes nearly impossible to have true friendships with anyone. A life centered on self will make it nearly impossible to have true friendships with anyone. The relationship between Jonathan and David reveals, I think, in my opinion, reveals a defect in our sex-absorbed culture and perspective. There is no, there is nothing about this relationship that is erotic. There is, there is in no way, their relationship is in no way a homosexual relationship and many have claimed that it is. This is an intimate friendship and it makes us uncomfortable because we don't know how to have true friends. It is at a level of intimacy that every single one of us are created for and yet uncomfortable with when we encounter. And this is because there's something wrong with us, not with them. Hearing Jonathan talk about being knit to the heart of another man makes us feel uncomfortable. Hearing Jonathan loving David as his own soul makes us uncomfortable. And at the end of chapter 20, seeing David and Jonathan kiss and weep over one another makes us uncomfortable. Hearing Jonathan stripping off his outer garments makes us very uncomfortable. Their friendship is a picture of intimacy and love for another person that all of us are created for, but very few of us actually experience. We're created for this kind of vulnerability, opening up our heart to another person. We are created for this kind of relationship and friendship, and, and we are often terrified by the level of intimacy that God has for us for, with other people. We are created to trust someone at such a deep level, to be known and yet fully loved. But we don't think that the joy of friendship is worse, worth the pain of betrayal because we've been so hurt, we have been so burned. And it's so foreign in our culture that we just don't know how to engage but there's something good that God wants us to learn from this. There's something, there's something of a blessing for us. As we grow in intimacy with Christ and love and his love for us, it should cause us to grow in confidence and to be able to grow with others in the kind of intimacy that really bears our soul with another person and does not feel afraid. And so these are some difficulties as we lament the difficulty in our culture to find good friendship. And so let's talk about the quality. Let's talk about what what does it look like then? What's the quality of true friendship? A true friend, as we see here, a true friend is someone who has chosen you in loyal love. See how Jonathan demonstrates this feature of true friendship. Verse one, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. What on earth is going on here? It sounds like David walks into the room with a beam of light behind him, and some mystical experience happens where Jonathan is just caught up in his tractor beam. (laughs) They link eyes, and all of a sudden, they are just linked. Their souls are linked. Soulmates for life. That's not what's happening. What is being described is a level of vulnerability and a level of opening up of one soul to another person and letting another person into your life to a level that is so foreign to us. To say that they were knit together is to convey a kind of conspiracy, meaning that they are conspiring together. They're conspiring with one another to bind together in friendship, in a bond that is so good and life-giving and, and opening up one's hearts to one another casts out fear that fills their hearts. This feature of true friendship makes friendship unique from every other kind of relationship we would have. Friendship brings something that neighbors cannot give us, that co-workers cannot possibly bring. Friendship brings something that, is, that siblings can never give to us. Friendship is unique and different from family or civic relationships or work relationships in the sense that friendships are 100% voluntary. There's no other relationship on earth like that. You are never forced into friendship. C.S. Lewis wrote a a book called The Four Loves and here he just looks at the four different kinds of loves that humans experience. And he isolates friendship as unique among the other three. He points out that friendship is the least necessary of all the different kinds of loves. Without romance, we wouldn't exist. Without affection, we would never be drawn to people to have relationship. Without connection with society, we would simply not survive because we need sanitation, we need law enforcement. So every other relationship in love is necessary. Friendship is unique. Friendship is a love so unique that it's not forced on anyone. No one will ever make you be a friend or have a friend, and that's partly why most of us have so few. Because somehow when life gets busy, we find a way to invest in every other relationship because it's a necessity. And that's why when life becomes busy, friendships suffer. We stop hanging out. We stop meeting. We stop investing in the souls and lives of others. We stop opening up and sharing our lives with others. But somehow, we make a way home to be with our family. Somehow, we make a way to pay our bills. Somehow, we we make a way to be good citizens. Somehow, we end up at work on time every day. And that reveals that friendship is unique because it is never put on anybody. It is completely optional in the sense that no one forces us to do it. That's why if your life is filled with frantic activity, you probably have very bad friendships. True friendship is not demanded or mandatory. It is deliberate. You may have a busy life, but you still manage to meet your obligation. But this is where the beauty of friendship is. True friendship is not a matter of being useful to a person or accomplishing goals or fulfilling your obligations, but being wanted by another person. True friendship is about wanting another person and being wanted. It is about knowing and being known. We all want to be wanted. We all want to be chosen, not because we are useful, but because we are cherished. We all want someone to look at us and say, it doesn't matter what you bring to the table. I love you and nothing can change. And not many of us actually experience those kinds of relationships. We always feel that there is one foot out the door. There's always an eye on the exit. Because as soon as you disappoint that person, they're gone. There is no relationship sacred, not even marriage, not even marriage, where we are sure that we have this kind of love. And this is what Jonathan does. The passage says his soul was knit to David's soul and he made a covenant with him. It was a vow. It was a promise, a commitment to be loyal. This is another way that romantic love in our culture has made the experience of true friendship so difficult that our culture would tell you that when feelings fade, then the promise can fade also. When feelings fade, when romance is gone, then commitment is also gone. And we say things like, that person is not the person I married. They have changed. Covenant puts moral bonds into the friendship and holds it together in hard moments of life. We should not be surprised to see a culture that puts so much emphasis on following your own heart and a love for self to also see a culture that does not know how to suffer with a person through the hard moments of life we don't know how to stick with people we don't know how to sacrifice for others we do not know how to lose for others of course we don't know how we haven't been taught we live in a culture that that does not encourage that why would you lose out for anyone That's what our culture would ask. It's no wonder that most of us don't invest in real relationships. It's no wonder that most of us think that it's a waste of time and would rather put energy into work because it's a consumer relationship that we can measure and feel safe in. It's why we pour into work and say, this is what God has called me to do because this is where I'm useful. This is where I'm good. This is where people's lives are being changed. And yet no one knows our deepness in our hearts. We have neglected the most beautiful of all kinds of relationships, true friendship. We need a better way. We need a better way to be true friends. And it's a good thing that preachers don't have to be experts on the material they preach. They just need to know what God says. And that's what I'm doing for you today. I'm going with you. I suck (laughs) at this. I want to get so much better. I am not good at being intimate with anyone. It is so hard. I imagine it's hard for you too. And there is a better way. It's so good. There is a better way and it is the right way. I preach the passage not as one who excels in this or has true friendships, but as one who desires to grow increasingly enjoying what God has created for us. For his glory, for our joy, for our joy as a church, for my joy as as just a person and a human and a husband and father and a friend and a citizen and a worker. And so let's look at the way of true friendship. We've looked at the difficulty with friendship and the quality of true friendship but the real significance and the bond between Jonathan and David is seen in verse 4 when this happens. When Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David, his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. What is happening is utterly astounding. Jonathan is Saul's son and therefore he is the crown prince of Israel and he is removing all signs of his identity and all signs of his glory and all signs of his privilege and honor. And he's giving it to David for the sake of friendship. He strips himself all of this. This was not, this was not nothing romantic, nothing erotic, nothing weird. He is saying in a, in a public display, everything that is mine, everything that keeps me alive, everything that is a benefit to me is now yours. For the sake of friendship. And when Jonathan takes off his robe and armor and gives it to David, he is taking off his right to be king. And he gives it to David. And Jonathan deliberately strips himself of all the things that makes his reputation great for David. And our culture is becoming more and more focused on pursuing our personal kingdoms and our personal greatness and building up our personal reputation And the result, I promise you, will be a generation of people who don't know how to be friends. Because we're all looking out for ourselves. That's a tragedy. We are already seeing it. In our culture that champions personal reputation, we will see people who don't know how to sacrifice for their friends. Our culture is becoming more and more individual We must look beyond this story to another friendship to which this friendship points. The Bible again and again and again. It takes friendships in the Bible, it takes relationships in the Bible of human relationships to point us beyond those friendships, pointing us to the very kind of friendship that is ours in Jesus Christ. To another friend who stripped off all of his glory. He stripped off his heavenly robe, his glory and reputation. He stripped off all of his honor to God Give us that honor and say everything that is mine is now yours for the sake of friendship. In John 13, on the final night of Jesus' life on earth, he had a meal with his disciples and he takes off his outer robe. And he lays it aside and the disciples start saying, whoa, what are you doing? And Jesus says, what I'm doing now you don't understand, but you will understand later. And then he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his, say it, friends. friends. Not his workers, not his employees, not even his disciples. There is no greater love than this, that someone would strip themselves of all that they have for the sake of his friends. And he says, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. No longer are we in this relationship where you are performing a duty for me. But now we're in this relationship of friendship, knit together. I am in you, you are in me. There is nothing erotic about that. There is nothing romantic about it. It is a kind of relational intimacy that we are meant to have with God and with others. So Jesus chooses his disciples He says that he loves them to the very end. He sacrifices for them. He dies on the cross and he clothes them with grace. Saul thinks of what he might lose and is threatened by David when he says, what more can he have but the kingdom? He's getting all this praise and all this affirmation and and all of this flattery. There's nothing left for him to get but my job. And then he tries to kill him. Saul is afraid of what he might lose, but Jonathan gives up all that he has for David. Saul grabs at Samuel's robe because the kingdom has been taken from him and and, and Jonathan takes off his robe and gives it to David. Don't you see that this passage is trying to point out to you and to me that that there's a friend much greater than Jonathan? There's a friendship that Jesus desires with you. It's the kind of friendship that Jesus sought out sought out you for. He stripped himself his own riches in order to give you friendship with God. He was stripped apart on the cross, ripped apart on the cross in order to keep his covenant to secure God's friendship for you. Jesus forfeited all his privilege for the sake of friendship. And we are glad that Jesus Jesus forfeited his privilege for the sake of friendship with us. And let me ask you some rhetorical questions. Are you Are your relationships in your life, uh, particularly are your friendships and relationships with others in Holy Cross based on loyal love? Or are they consumer relationships that you enjoy as long as they are convenient, as long as they are useful to you? Is there one, literally like one or two or maybe three people, if you're truly blessed, that you have given yourself to completely In complete transparency, is there anyone who you can tell that they are completely wrong without risk of losing that relationship? Is there anyone who you would suffer loss for, and not just suffer like superficial loss for? I mean, let me ask you, is there anyone in your life that you would suffer such loss for to the extent that it would change your standard of living? Would you do that for anybody? Anybody? Do you know of anybody who would do that for you? Who would lose a car, a house, a job to be close to you? If you don't have one or two or three people like that, it's possible that you have a community of acquaintances. You have a lot of people saying you're awesome, you're beautiful, how special you are, I wanna be more like you. You have a lot of people coming out into the city square, praising you and offering you flattery. It's possible you don't have any friends. You don't have any true friends. And yet there's something about that flattery that you still seek after. It feels like friendship, it looks like friendship, and yet it never delivers what friendship is meant to deliver. You may be thinking, I don't have anybody close like that. The way to maintaining and making friendships like this depends to a large degree in our ability to be convinced in our inner being, like in the deepest parts of our soul that we have this friendship with Christ because He's chosen us in loyal love. The relationship between a Christian and Jesus is not based on our usefulness to Him because Jesus Christ laid down His life for His enemies. He laid down His life for us. He stripped Himself of all of His privilege. At the moment, we were the worst friends so that we could be called His friends. And when we know that we are accepted and loved because of what Jesus has done, this changes the way we love others. It changes the way we open up to others, because even when we are betrayed and rejected, we have lost nothing in the privilege and riches of Christ. The heart of the gospel is not that sins are just forgiven, but more than that, that we are draped in His favor Jesus is not motivated by what he might lose. He lost everything for what we would gain. And so if we have Christ and we lose everything, we still have everything. Take his robe of grace. Take what he takes off of himself and gives to you. Receive that. Trust in the truest friend you have ever had and follow him. For he loves you with a committed and loyal love that will never fade.